Time Wars Supreme Command is a new strategy card game now on Kickstarter. The 161st century is an era where time travel brings about a new kind of war, a time war. In the world's first deck stacking game, you must assemble your forces and equip them with temporal age technology as you duel for control over history. Heroes from a future beyond bigotry must team up with legends from our past to bring about a brighter future. Time Wars Supreme Command on Kickstarter now. Hey, this is Malcolm D. Lee, director of such films as The Best Man, Best Man Holiday, and Barbershop, The Next Cut. And you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Episode 68 of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode's title is a very simple title. It's the name of our guests, Adina Porter, Andre Royo, and Simon Tafik. Those three guests are featured in this episode 68. And in our first segment, we introduce Adina Porter. You know her best from TV shows such as True Blood, The 100, Newsroom, and currently Underground. Now, I do need to say... Spoiler alert, if you have not watched Underground, her character Pearly May is no longer on the show. At the time of the recording, however, I had no idea about that, and she didn't give us any hints that that was coming. So there is going to be some discussion about her current role on Underground. And then in addition to talking about the show, we also talk about her, her career, her experiences as an actress in this industry, and also the issues of colorism and how it's had an impact on her career. And in that segment, we have co-hosts Kayla and Karan. In segment two, we interview Andre Royo. Now, you know him best as Bubbles from The Wire. He's also currently on the show Empire. And we had a chance to sit down with him at South by Southwest. This is a one-on-one interview by Jacqueline, and Andre discusses his new project called The Hunter Gatherer. He also talks about his experience in the industry, and he also encourages more people of color to be behind the scenes, directing, producing, making content, and giving other roles and opportunities for people of color to be represented in fully fleshed roles. So Jacqueline and Andre have a great, fun discussion at South by Southwest. In our third segment, Karan does a one-on-one interview with Simon Tafik. If you haven't heard about Simon Tafik, this is a really great opportunity for you to get to know him. He's a film composer, he's an inventor, he's a producer, and he's done many films, many short films. And currently, he's working on The New Yorker Presents, which is on Amazon Prime. So we go into a little bit about his history, his educational background, what got him into composing, what 
works he's done as an inventor, and so much more. So it'll be a really interesting opportunity to meet Simon. So that's what you can expect out of episode 68. Look forward to your comments. Please subscribe. Please rate us on iTunes. Please give us hearts. Give us follows on SoundCloud. Let us know how we're doing. Follow us on the Twitter account at BGM Podcast. And also feel free to always tweet to us, whether it's at BGM Podcast or at Black Girl Nerds on Twitter. And let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear it. And also you can use the hashtag BGM Podcast as well. And that puts you in the feed with other listeners of our podcast. So that way you guys can converse and comment together about your thoughts regarding each of these shows. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy episode 68, Coming At Ya, Adina Porter, Andre Royo, and Simon Tafik. Adina Porter is an award-winning actress known for her recurring role as Letty Mae Thornton, also known as Tara Thornton's mother, on HBO's True Blood. She also played the role as Kendra on HBO's Newsroom and starred on The 100 as Indra. Currently, Adina Porter is on the hit groundbreaking show Underground, a TV period drama series created by Misha Green and Joe Pekaski about the Underground Railroad in Georgia. The show airs Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern Time and trends every week on Twitter. Check out this interview with Adina Porter where she talks about Underground, her career, her history as an actress, and what got her in this industry. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. We are incredibly excited to have this guest on our show. She is best known for roles such as The 100, Newsroom, and True Blood, and she is currently starring as the role of Pearlie May on WGN's new hit show, Underground. Adina Porter is here with us on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Thank you, Adina, for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me. And we have our co-hosts Karan and Kayla with us today. Hi. Hello. So, Adina, I want to first talk about Underground. I mean, oh my goodness. This is one of the most talked about shows right now on social media, and it's a breakout show for WGN, which tackles issues of slavery, politics, the power Mm -hmm. dynamics in a very profound way. What led you to be a part of this show and what makes Underground unique from other TV shows and films that depict the institution of slavery? Okay, what brought me to this project was an audition. Um, (laughs) Usually how it starts. (laughs) But um, I knew that Anthony Hemingway was one of the executive producers and the director, and I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with him on the newsroom and on True Blood, so I knew how wonderful he is. And and when you have fans, you always want to do a really great job. So that's what I wanted to do. When I first came into the project, in for the role, I, I went in and auditioned for Ernestine, which mm-hmm. is Rosalie's mom. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the producers really wanted to play and and talk about and deal with that incredibly ugliness of the light skin versus dark skin, mm-hmm. yeah, field hands versus uh, house, house servants, mm-hmm. and and so I'm a very good actor, but I don't play Hayella. So um, <laughs> they asked me then to come back and audition for Pearlie May. 
which I did. And then I found out that no one else did. So I am the one and only Pearlie Mae. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And you've done such a fantastic job in that role. And I Thank see you. how like the hashtag underground WGN, it trends every week when that show airs. <laughs> Are, are you engaged on social media? And what's been the response like from folks that are live tweeting the show? You know, it has been extremely positive, which is unusual for tweeting because usually it's 50-50 because, you know, people can just say what they feel, but it's been extremely positive. You know, we tweet a lot before the show starts, when the show ends, and during the commercials because Underground it's not a show you can watch while you're like doing your laundry or, or your taxes online. You know what I mean? You've got to sit there and really follow along with, with all the things that are happening. I, I'm amazed by the music and, and how it's, you know, modern day music and the breath and everything else that's going along. It is really quite a, a ride. Other actors are very complimentary to, to each other while we're watching our work. People usually ask me questions about how it is to to portray uh, Pearly May? How did I get to emotionally where I needed to go in certain scenes while they're watching? So I, I share my my method and and what I'm feeling at the moment. Um, that's usually what people are talking about while tweeting online and and watching Underground. You tackle a diverse array of characters mm -hmm. from doctors to Letty May to Pearly May. How important to you as a black woman is it for you to portray these different characters that you take on? I got to play a brain surgeon on Grey's Anatomy. Yes, you did. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they wanted to bring me back, but it conflicted with newsroom. It's as the life of an actor, you know, it was either feast or famine. And I'm going to say that I think I'm, and maybe I'm crazy, but I think I'm lucky because of actresses who have gone before me, actresses like Lynn Thigpen and, okay, I'm blanking on her name right now. We worked together on Lackawanna Blues and she played the- Esther me. Yes, yes, yes. I can never pronounce her name right. <laughs> um, because of, of the work that they have done before me, I- don't have to, I feel, worry as much about being a role model in the roles that I get to play. So even though my mom really likes it best <laughs> when I'm playing a, a doctor than when I was um, an alcoholic on True Blood, I'm more interested in the arc that the character gets to go through and and the emotional journey that she gets to go through. So I don't think about am I am I doing my daughter a disservice by playing this role? If you understand what I'm saying. I, I don't think about that. And when my manager calls and says, you know, she's a doctor or she's a lawyer, I'm like more interested in does she get to be dirty? I mean, that does not mean meaning does does she get dirty? Does she get into the, the nooks and crannies of what's happening in her life? Or is she just there for exposition and to show everybody that we have a black person in a, 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 a role where she's playing someone respectable? I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in characters that 
have these amazing arcs. What I loved about playing Letty Mae was that sometimes she was just downright ugly. The way she treated her daughter was just mm -hmm. was horrendous. And I, I, I love it when people come up to me and say, you know, I can't stand your character. <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, it's really, really, I, I, I affected them. So that's what draws me to a role. And I don't mind getting dirty and being ugly. And with Indra on The Hundred, I also have fans that love watching me, but love hating me at the same time. The only thing that I, I do that might be considered role model-esque is that I wear my hair natural when the character warrants it. I don't think Letty May on True Blood had the guts to walk with her hair um, mm -hmm. natural. So that was, you know, yet again, showing her how wounded she was. And that's why she always wore the wigs that she wore. But I like very much that I, that, that's one thing that I do where I think I send a message. That's, that's an amazing answer. That's <laughs> anything I would have hoped for, especially with, I, I think that's a big stigma too, with a lot of black actresses, you know, is being natural. And I think that that's amazing that you do that, especially you know, letting that be known that this is your take on the character. Well, that, how, I, how I got to that was, I mean, you, you know, you go back on the internet, you will see me with my weaves, you know, down to my knees. So, you know, I, I thought for the longest time that that's what I needed to do. And then when my children were born, and I remember saying to my son, he was like six months old in the bath, don't splash mommy's hair. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Exactly. <laughs> so that was ridiculous. So now, you know, I'm I'm a mom of an, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old. I don't have time to do my hair. You know, children are expensive, so money that money can go towards their education and, and holidays and toys and stuff. So it's not that I am, you know, some incredibly grounded person i went through the trenches and 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 now on the other side and that's the only reason why i do but i also wear pieces and everything else and and it's my choice and and it's whoever's choice uh to do whatever they you know damn well feel like doing so growing up who inspired you to enter the acting profession who did you look up to actress wise for you getting into this well, of course, Cicely Tyson. I've always wanted to be an actor. When I was very, very, very young, at my sister church, I grew up in New York, and my sister, I went to St. Mark's Methodist Church. Well, at our sister's church, Salem Methodist Church, Butterfly McQueen was, she was in charge of the programming. So, you know, the Easter pageant and the Christmas show and all those kind of things, that's what she was in charge. So my very, 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 very first acting teacher was Miss Butterfly McQueen. Wow. So there's that. There's Keith David. Uh, he was part yes. of yes. the um, the the Juilliard troupe called The Acting Company. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I remember they came to my junior high school and I saw him up on stage and I thought, well, yeah, I can do that. Those are the people that come to mind. And of course, well, that was later on for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is not enough. That's when I, I thought, okay, I, I possibly can try to do this. 
There's been so much talk surrounding the kinds of roles for black actors, particularly darker skinned black women being cast in award winning roles, but as maids and slaves. Mm-hmm. Were you concerned about criticism taking the role? Wow. Great question. Was I concerned about criticism taking the role? Um, let me see if I can answer it this way. When I went in and I auditioned for Ernestine, I came back to the car and I called up my manager and I said, I don't want to do this. Um, not because fear of criticism. I was like, I don't want to go to this ugly place again. I don't want to go and, and not feel good about my wide nose and my dark skin and my uh, hips. I don't want to go there. I, I paid good money to my therapist to get out of that. I don't want to go back. And then and then with, with Pearly May's arc, I said, okay, I, I can do that. Was I concerned about criticism? I guess not. Because I remember I did a role on Broadway with the show called The Women. And because of it being a period piece, I played numerous roles on that show. But one of them was a maid who was, I guess she was, I mean, it was written that she would be step and fetch it. And I don't Mm -hmm. like changing history. And I think if you change history, you'll forget. In my my personal belief, if the woman who played her originally, and she had to go through that, then I'm going to go through that um, because I'm not going to change her history and, and, and respect what she had to go through. Because if all those people didn't go through what they went through, I wouldn't be able to be who I am and, and the roles that I get to play. So, um, no, I, I wasn't worried about that kind of criticism. And when people asked me why another slave drama, mm-hmm. I say, I didn't know about the Japanese internment camps until I saw a movie of the week when I was a grown woman. I have no idea why I didn't learn that in history class. Now, of course, everybody knows about slavery, mm-hmm. but I think that a lot of people think that the abolitionist and slavery ended because of white people in the North being benevolent and, and going, okay, this is wrong. It's time to, time to stop this institution. And I think we forget about the, the individual slaves who knew that they were enslaved people and that this was wrong and what they did every single day to change their circumstances and to gain freedom for themselves or for their children. And I, I very much appreciate what Joe and Misha and Anthony, how they tell the story in Underground, so that I think it's very empowering. Underground went to Comic-Con, and I remember asking Misha Green, one of the executive producers and writers, why go to a comic convention? And she said, because these characters are superheroes. And I went, oh. Mm, love yeah. that. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So this take on it and, and, and how we think of it as the great escape, that's why this story that's what's that's what's different about underground and, and this story and that's one part that i am very very excited about and proud about and so i i that's what i answer when they say why another slave drama and um worry about any kind of criticism 
what is your hope for underground and do you believe it can shift the narrative of the denial of slavery? I used to live in Texas and they <laughs> were, and when my, my daughter was in school in Texas, they had this whole movement to change the textbooks and to remove the word slavery and to call it something else related to an economic change, but not slavery. So my question is, wow. do you believe that it can shift the narrative of denial of slavery or attempts to change that history? Wow. I did not know that. It was crazy. Uh, that is that is beyond crazy. That's mm -hmm. just beyond mm -hmm. crazy. Well then yet again, okay, this well we gotta we gotta just bring I'm gonna drop DVDs of underground all over the state of Texas. <laughs> please do. School please the do. children. School them, please. <laughs> well, you know, movies can be incredibly powerful. And so, yes, I do believe that because people are talking about it, because we watch television in our own time, you know, mm -hmm. people DVD it or they, they're able to go online to either Hulu or Crackle and binge watch different shows. I definitely think that it can change uh, the narrative and, and stop people from ever wanting to deny the history. Because of the way it's created, because of the music and, and the drama of it all, I think young people can can learn about this particular history. And then if they happen to be in a classroom where someone wants to say, no, that's that's that wasn't slavery, well, they'll have a reference to go, well, what are you talking about? I mean, I think about someone during, um, I guess it was not this presidential campaign, but but the last one where someone from the audience stood up and said, but wait a minute, you were fed and you were clothed and you were housed. So, you know, um, you were taken care of. And so if it wasn't for programs like Underground, some people could begin to change history and believe that the best thing that happened to African-Americans were being stolen from Africa and brought to the United States where they were housed and fed and clothed and civilized and, and, civilized and given Christianity. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for slavery, you know, where would they be? So the victors do write history. So um, underground being able to be another voice out there. Yeah, I definitely think that it can change people's perspective, especially young people's perspective, because I mean, older folks, I feel like, you know, my father went to the uh, March on Washington and, and my parents had to segregate their workplaces. So they came home with stories. So I don't think my generation would forget, but maybe my children's generations would if they're not continued to be educated about slavery and, and segregation and yeah, you better go out and vote because not too long ago, there were all these different rules where you weren't allowed to. Does that answer your question? Perfectly. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and also, you know, speaking about education and information, the show Underground is just so dynamic in so many different ways. And um, I had just caught up on the show recently. And I, I have to admit, I, I came in with some low expectations. I'm like, oh, gosh, not another slavery show. Here we go. And I was amazed. The performances are stunning. 
every shot is beautifully done. Um, the cinematography is excellent. And yes. props to Misha Green, a black woman, leading the charge over there at Underground. So thank you so much, Adina, for coming on our show. Before you go, can you just let us know where we can find you on the interwebs and give us okay. your social media shout outs? Thanks so much for having me. I'm really simple on the web. I'm Adina Porter. So my website is adinaporter.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is Adina Porter. Instagram, Adina Porter. So, yeah, that's that's all me. Excellent. Underground <laughs> airs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And thank you, Adina, for coming on the show. Learned so much. This was great. Welcome. And on April 9th, the WGM will be doing another marathon. So Ooh, um, yes. I, on April 9th, I think it's going to start in the morning. So go online, WGN, and find out exactly in your time zone when the marathon will be beginning so you can catch up. Yes, binge watch it. That's what I did. And it was excellent, guys. You will not regret it. Can I tell you, you have the most gorgeous smile. Your teeth are perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Welcome. Thank you, Lizzie. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Our next segment is with Andre Royo. Andre Royo is best known for his role as Bubbles on the provocative HBO hit The Wire. He's currently starring on Empire. His new film, called The Hunter Gatherer, debuted at South by Southwest. In the role, he plays a man after a three year stint in prison, going back to his girlfriend and his neighborhood, only to find out that she and his family have done what they've always wanted to do forget that he exists. So right now we're getting to sit down with the star of Hunter Gatherer, Andre Royo. Of course, you all know him as the comparable Bubs and also Thirsty. Yeah. And he's also Bobo from Hands of God. I mean, do you take I'm, him I'm, I'm just looking for a regular name. I'm, <laughs> for, I'm so glad to be Ashley right no, now. No, because Bobo, Thirsty, Bobo's tattoo, I had a lot of nicknames. Listen, I was actually, it's like you read my notes. Okay, Let me tell you this right now. I was like, you have the best. Going back to like tattoo. Yes, sir. I'm going to take yes, it back that yeah. far. And I'm I was first like, round. yes, exactly. I'm like, you have the best names. And then even with this one, when you have a regular name, they're going to gender bend it. You know, yes. so you're going to get a girl's <laughs> regular name. It's, no. I think that's the deal. Something about my nature. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we're here at South by Southwest and uh, Hunter Gatherer is premiering. I've seen the film. It's amazing. Like, Thank you, you so do much. such a good job at it. Let's be, I want to be very clear, and you you impress me a lot right now. Do you ever really sit there and say, I saw the film, it was whack? Do you ever have that count where no, you go, like, I saw the film. You just don't, you say, I didn't see the film. Oh, yeah, <laughs> now I know. So now, in the next interview, somebody goes, listen, I didn't see the film. You saw it. You or, saw or it. they don't even mention it at all. I like, see it. Okay. They don't nah, mention it. Nah, Good. And then maybe they didn't see it with Connor's press. Like, we get, you know what I'm saying? But isn't press supposed to be the facts? Well, that's the thing. When you, when you are doing this thing, sometimes it's like, hey, if you're involved with something else, when we still want to sit down, you know how it is. How many times people ask about the wire? Showing off for eight years. You know, the, 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 amazing, the amazing thing about that that always blew my mind, because that's an actor, you kind of wait for somebody to be like, yeah, I saw it. It wasn't all that. With the wire, it was either two, it was two sides. It was, uh, I loved it, mm-hmm. or I hadn't seen it. Yeah, and that was kind but of like, I need to because all these people keep yelling yeah, at me yeah. about seeing it. So yeah. it's kind of amazing. But I just wanted, I just wanted, I 
I would love to hear that. I mean, moment, if you want to give me my press translation, and I'm going to keep it real because I'm still relatively new at this, Not so right. I will tell you the real. These other folks, they're like, we're from they're going to be as you. That's my humble opinion. Right. They're just yeah. not going to say they saw it. <laughs> Or they're gonna be like, you know, it's on my list. It's on my list. <laughs> so those are the ones. Yeah. Good to know. Or they don't mention it at all. Right. They're like, what? Okay. So yeah. So the wire's been on for eight years, but I mean, I was gonna start with the together, but since you brought it up, you still to this day are a huge cheerleader of every single person that you worked with on that show. Like I was yeah. looking back on it, it's like you know when Michael's doing his thing, when Tom McCarthy's doing yeah, his so thing. Really, you know, this is the type of show that you know, two thousand. We were in Baltimore, and HBO being the, the great station that they are, you know, they were making a lot of money with Soprano, Sex and the City, Six Hundred, and we were the show that was over there. We were the show that, no, <laughs> listen, we need some black people. We don't want to get caught with that diversity. <laughs> so we need some black people on screen. Tell us, tell us your story. And in 2000, it was being kind of overlooked, you know, and it was we we knew that, or we felt like we were growing into understanding that. This is something special, but we weren't getting it, you know, outside of our neighborhood. Yeah. Our neighborhood was yeah. like, yo, I like your joint. Yeah. But outside of that, it wasn't really happening. Only, you know, it started to sprinkle in around the fourth season. I think you're another great show that benefited so much from DVDs. Yeah. That's when people still did DVDs. Yeah, and, and social media. Yes. Once social media started, you know, opening up the world and we started seeing outside, you know, of our own ego, what's happening, people were like, yo, this is like The Wire. <laughs> this is like, well, the, the Wire was talking about yes. this. And it, and it grew. And How much are you seeing, like, right now that is literally ripped from the pages yeah, of The Wire? Yeah. I mean, anything from silly press balloons yeah, type yeah. stuff to, like, the, the blue wall of the yes. police and, you know, the cover. It's so, it's so true. And Unfortunately, it's so relevant. Still. It's so relevant. Yeah. And what's more important is it's so, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, he was writing that and just spitting it. And I think people thought it was, oh, well, this is probably inspired, but no, this is no. this is just how it is. It's just now we're starting to be more honest yeah. about now it. Now we so get the head out the sand. It's, you know, and, and I think David Simon, his main thing about The Wire at the end of it all was at the end of the fifth season when it's all said and done, now you can't say, I don't know. Yeah. You can't, we don't know how to fix it. We're not giving you any answers, yeah. but you can't say, you can't claim ignorance yes. to it. Yeah, well, some people still will, but yeah. we, we could be like, I have a present. That's right. the box set. That's right. Anyway, so bring it back to Hunter Gatherer. Yes. Um, and so, like I said, I did like the film. Thank you so much. I, I was really surprised, first of all, how the role came to you, and then also your director, because, I mean, I'm just going to put it to you real. The White Boy wrote a very black movie with a real truth to it, yeah. but he didn't make it stereotypical. He just made it truth, but still within our community. And I was like, I, before I read the Bible, I thought he was black. I was like, really? Yeah. Well, listen, when I got, when I got <laughs> a friend of mine, a casting director, a friend of mine, you know, read the script, and we had talked about movies that we liked, and whatever. He said, I think you might like this script. Send it to me. I read it. I said, it's dope. I want to meet the director. And I'm sitting in the coffee shop waiting for the director. And, you know, this dude, six foot two, poor Bunyan dude, walking. From, like, what, Tennessee? Yeah, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like this, what? This guy blocking my whole side of the way. And let me see my director. And he sat down, and I found that amazing. I found that to be what I love about this art form, is that you interact with people, and it's not about color. It's about the same similarities and storytelling. And, you know, you were there at the premiere. Something wonderful happened where these two African-American, you know, People came up and said, yo, this wasn't, it was really good, I loved the film, but it, it wasn't your typical black movie. And I feel like saying, well, thank you. Yeah. Because I don't know what that means. No, it's, it's You know, like, I grew up watching a lot of movies. Yeah. And I never remember myself saying, wow, this wasn't your typical white movie. 
Yeah. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So I, I think, you know, we know that there is a, you know, a, a very heavy cloud mm -hmm. or, or we're saturated in the conversation of race and how we're perceived and how we're rejected. And we worry about that. We hold on to yeah. the idea of, I want to be rejected a certain way. I like want to be laughed. Yeah, I want to be. I want to be laughed with, not at. Yeah. And I think you know, Josh Losey's storytelling. It just was what it was. You know, and it, it didn't have a race through line. It just happened to have, you know, black but, actors. But that was the best part for <laughs> yes, me. Is it wasn't like okay, we're going to have this stereotypical right. character, That's that right. stereotypical character, and it would have been so easy to do it, it with that storyline. You know, an ex-convict, and you know. You know, I hate to say like baby mama type situation. Yeah, like it's yeah. so easy to fall into those tropes, but they just felt like family going through a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, you have this young boy, and just it was about the relationships. And I feel this movie is the perfect movie when I tell people. See, sometimes they say you know about casting. We talk about Oscar so white. This is a perfect example of that because you can write those same words on that page yes. for an Asian family. For a Latino family, it doesn't have to be that, or a white family, and that's where most scripts come. And the fear is in, in Hollywood or in studio creators is they're so beholden to the ignorance of how they feel the audience is going to respond that they say, "I can't do this," or they won't come. Yes, unless I have. And this, then Creed goes and makes a million dollars, you know, like, and then you know, straight out of college, one of the biggest movies last year. So hopefully they're going to get it. Well, I mean, let let's be very clear. I want to celebrate the, the, the concept that, you know, a lot of uh, African-American storytelling is being greenlit. But, you know, at the same token, you know, it's always that slippery slope where they realize now that, you know, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word, slave movies make money. So uh, slave make yeah. money. Mm -hmm. So now we're greenlighting that, like, three slave TV yeah. shows coming on. There's three more movies about slavery coming on. And I don't know if that's a celebration no. or it's a... Oh, now they believe it's, it. No, now they believe it's green. Now, they, now that they believe it makes money, let's green light it. Because it's know? a business. It's an artistic driven business. That's right. It's show it's business. business. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I'm happy that, you know, we're being able to at least introduce, you know, a, a, a plethora of actors that are African American or all people of color that are good. Mm -hmm. Now we have to get behind, you know, business and, and take over, not take over, but embrace the power of. <laughs> Distribution yeah. of writing, of directing, so that we can, you know, regain the power of expressing ourselves from mm -hmm. our own point of view. Yeah, it's like his Oscar speech. It's like, look, there is no black person with greenlit power in this right. entire sound. That's right. So. And as far as you know, Josh Losey and the Hunter Gatherer, you know, even the independent film is the pure part of our industry. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a theater boy, so. You know, theater is spiritually satisfying for any artist, and you know the, the movie game is, and TV is really about the stability. Yeah. You want to be able to, you know, not have to worry about how you're paying your bills. That's, <laughs> yeah. what, that's what I mean. TV is now. I'm, I'm loving that television in the small screen has really amped up their mm -hmm. storytelling. With streaming, I mean, you're right now. Yeah. I, I was like, do you sleep? Because you're able to be on. Nobody sleeps. Nobody can sleep when you got a motherfucker like Kevin Hart out there. Uh. He's showing you that. You can sleep if you want to. You got a mansion. You living good? Your mother living good. You're sleeping. I, I, I went to high school with another one. I went to high school with Sean Combs. Oh, Paul okay. Daddy. He was another dude that went there. You sleeping? You must be, you must be rich. You laying on better money? I'm going to work. I'm going to work every day, all day. You know, and it, it's just... 
But I like that you're able to do that because you're able to be on a streaming show. Like now that we yeah. have these now streaming have these. venues, yeah, it right. would be before you're like, look, you got pilot season. When you get picked up for this one, you're not gonna be able to do another thing. Yeah. And they're gonna be like, oh, what, what else are you? What yeah. are they thinking about yeah. you about? That's like right. they'd be mad because you're going for something. Now you can do this, that, mm-hmm. and still. That's right. And, and and let's not get it twisted. I've been sleeping for like <laughs> I had my moment to sleep. We all know when this industry is peaks and valleys. And you know there there was you know time after again the why was ten years ago and there was a time where people weren't thinking about me because I was this iconic character I mean you know because David Simon and that whole you know collaboration with Baltimore and acting and storytelling mm-hmm. there were real people involved and, and people thought I was a real jumper. This is a backhanded compliment. I appreciate the. Uh, you know, I appreciate the you know, the accolades of being real in this character, but you you're know, like I studied to do this. Know, there, there was work at this, but you know, there's peaks and valleys, right? and you know, there's ups and downs. And I, I'm happy and, and I'm excited that I'm at a, a peak right now, and yeah. I want to continue to climb and continue to have opportunities to uh, showcase more layers of my craft. No, when you came off in Thirsty, I just thought that character was, first off, so different, but as soon as he did it, I was like, this is the Black Better Call Saul, yeah. dude. Like, this shit is so serious. Yeah. I was like, this is so great. Thank and you. it's so different. Like, you yeah. put that up against Bubbles and, like, again, show your craft. I love how you talked about, you know, Theater Boy, because one of the things I noticed when I was scary for this is, like, you know, you're Mr. New York. So what's it like for you coming down to Austin? Because Austin is like, I feel like if there's an antithesis as far as difference of flow in several ways, it's like Austin to New York. Well, yeah, but I'm, unfortunately, I, I can't answer that question. It's my first time in Austin, and I don't know if I'm getting a chance to feel Austin. Oh, okay. I'm not, even, I'm not able to walk around and just see. all you do is staring at me all day. Like, that's a good thing. That's uh, a good yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I get it twisted. But I'm excited to be able to you know, venture out. Mm-hmm. At first, I was mad that it's my first time here. I feel like I, I wish I was here a lot more oh, okay. beforehand, but now that I'm here and you know, it's for a great project, I'm trying to find a moment to get outside. And well, I don't, you, I won't know a city until I'm <laughs> out, and, you know, at about 2, 2 a.m. and be out here <laughs> having a little barbecue and yeah. be like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, the people on the street go bald. Yeah, 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 that's when you know you're there. Yeah, yeah so, I got you. Know, it's been fun. It's always, it's always uh, inspirational and motivating to be around. A festival where everybody is talking about what you love. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I can wake up every day and be like, "I'm gonna go get some drinks. I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna see a movie." <laughs> yeah, that's the you know. That's and the, the premiere last night was every film that comes here worries about how many people are gonna right. come. But I, I obviously you guys did it up and made full house. Everyone's thank there you, doing the thing. That was yeah. that was so great, and um, I was really happy to be there. So um, the other thing I was gonna ask you about is uh, the young actor you worked with, George Sample the, the third. third. Yeah, so right. like, first of all, he was like the third one, but I feel like saying the best for third or maybe less. I yeah. don't know because that kid in that role. I mean, he's awesome. He's awesome. He's new. We found him or uh, the director just saw a movie last year called Cronus. Oh, okay. That was at Sundance. He was the lead. Yeah, okay. And that was his first movie. Yeah, I was like looking on his IMDb page. I have not seen that movie. I knew yeah. it was at Sundance. That's right. I mean, I'm, I was lucky enough to go. But, and, you know what I mean? But, I'm with yeah. the heat. Yeah. But, yeah, I was like, I thought he was coming pretty much out of nowhere. I was like, I did not know yeah. that that was, you know, his first vehicle for yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah, it's the second film, and, you know, there was something about him and just his essence. 
that we don't very really see. Yeah, his you know? face, like, just, whatever, it's like what you talk, I heard you talking once day where he's like, you know, everyone told me when I was coming up in the theater, you have a presence. Yeah. And you can work on the rest. You can learn everything else. Yeah. That you can't, you can't yeah, be taught. Yeah, you can't be taught. There's certain moments I'm working with George, and even in the scene, you know, I'm so used to working with a certain type of characters. There's a certain ego, there's a certain, like, I'll bring it to, that you kind of can feel it. Uh-huh. And with George, I was like this, I don't know what's happening. Like, I don't know what's, what's, what's he doing. And then I would go to Video Village and look at the camera like, oh, he's doing all that. <laughs> like, oh, all that is coming across, you know. And, you know, I, I was really, really, in a just a sincere way, I was jealous of the newness, like I remember my first movie. I remember my first time. We always remember our first time. <laughs> but you know, and that that was you know that was incredible to, to be able to share with him. And he's looking at me like well, I'm working with like the first time we had a table read. He was like, "Yo, I'm in St. Louis, you know, just like doing laundry, and now I'm working with, with Mr. Andre Royal." Yeah. And I'm like, "Am I that guy?" Then? Am I that guy? <laughs> Wait a minute, I remember saying that with Sam Jackson. I remember saying like. Am I that guy now? And that, you know, that, I mean, that just well, made yeah, me... Well, I mean, there's names in cinema, there's definitely names in black cinema, and I, yeah. I, I, thought, it, I thought it was incredible, and then I, I, I also felt like, okay, well, this is a responsibility that we're going to, you know, this is, you know, this is something that we're doing together. We, I won't, it won't work unless we both, you know, hold each other accountable yeah. and be there for each other. Yeah, and that relationship, again, this is going to be another one where people are going to be like, is that your real son? And they, yeah, you know, they're yeah, going to become yeah. this or that because... That's the thing. His casting was brilliant because, no offense, you can choose some scenery. Let's that's be honest. Right. You know, you, you know what? <laughs> it's like, I don't know what that meant right there. You are someone that people want to focus in on. Yes. So to cast a kid that is able to, to come up to that's you right. and, and be able to still hold those scenes, I, I, again, both of you did an amazing job, but I was really impressed that his able to keep up with you. Yeah, I mean, right. that, just for lack of a better word. So... Black Girl Nerds is a site for women of color that embrace all things geek. So we do comic books, we do gaming, we do I'm all I'm just so happy. I'm an old man. I'm so happy that geek and nerd is a, is a, is a compliment. <laughs> so I grew up with nerd. It was a slap back then. It was a kick in the ass. You know. Now geek and nerd is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like we remember. You need, to, you need to learn how to do it now. They have inherited the earth. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> So, um, one of the things I like to ask every single person I interview is, what is your super secret geeky behavior? So, what is this thing that you're like, I geek out on? Some people, it's independent film. I interviewed someone yesterday, and she is like, she will go see the most obscure independent film. Any yeah. film festival she goes to, yeah. she will make sure she sees every film. If she can't catch it live, she will mm-hmm. get a screener for it later. Okay. Yeah, like she's that about So, her. you don't want it to be a secret anymore. That's just saying, yeah. it's super secret, but now you want me to expose yeah. Yeah, um, in the world. <laughs> in the world. Okay, I, you know what? I, I I feel like I've grown a lot, and like I said before, you know, I grew up in a, in a time where it wasn't cool to be smart. Mm-hmm. Like you, you would like you got a hundred on your test, you kind of like sold it up a lot. Like I failed too, but uh, <laughs> fuck school, ha! You know, you know. Keeping it real. Yeah, you know, I, have a, I have a daughter now, and, and, and I'm watching a generation that really embraces being smart, like social media. Has, you know, opened up a world where they can find information. I don't know if they know what it means to know and have that knowledge. They're losing that, you know, that conversation. But at least they, they're engaged in learning. And I guess the one thing I never did before, I thought it was really retarded and stupid, but now I'm geeked out on going is 
museums. Oh, yeah. Like, I used to go to museums. You beat that book and you start doing Yo, it. Yo, I, I used to go to museum with my lady or whomever and be like, I'm going to sit right here. Go ahead. Walk over. <laughs> walk over. Oh, my God. Man. You're really going to stand here and look at that blank canvas. Like, it's ridiculous. But now, I, you know, I find myself, you know, excited to go and just see what I'm going to feel. See what's going to draw me. I like how you said that. See what you're going to feel like. You're ready for it to bring you. Yeah, but you feel it. Yeah. If, you, if you walk in just to use one part of your, one part of your sensory, like the, the eyes, it's boring. Because you're like this. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> I didn't do that. That's what I did. Well, that's big. That must be art, you know? But when you use everything, when you walk in and say, I mean, what's, what's going to draw me? You don't, really, you don't really look at art. Art looks at you. And it draws your attention. And... I'm geeked out on that right now. Every city in Chicago, I go to museums and I just, you know, put on some headphones sometimes or I just, you know, try to find a way where I put on headphones that are not plugged I'm giving it away. I put on headphones that are not plugged into anything. Because <laughs> now it, everybody's going to know. I know, I know. Because it, it, it gives me a certain barrier uh-huh. that people won't really come up with it like, well, you can't hear us. You know, <laughs> it allows me to just walk around a little bit. Yeah. You know. Because I'm pretty, how much do you get stopped here? I get stopped. I get yeah. stopped. You know, it's kind of it's kind of weird. I mean, now I'm getting stopped more for thirsty. Oh which yes, is, which is cool. Yeah. Because bubbles. I was just wondering, like, I took a shower. Do I look like bubbles? No, I no. I got my teeth. Got <laughs> no, but no, I, I get stopped. And again, with some thirsty. Baby, empires. Empires too. Empires too. I mean, the wire all five seasons never had 26 million people. No. You know, How does that feel? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. It's a different energy. It's exciting, and and I always feel like. It's hard to compare. There is no real comparison as far as what they were. I mean, The Wire and Empire. But there is a comparison as far as how they're impactful. Mm, the yes. Wire was something that was really trying to educate and inspire people to do something, right? And Empire That's is, black telenovela. It's, it's, it's celebrating that yeah. we are something. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like we, we impacted and infiltrated American culture yeah. to an undeniable yeah. Sensibility, and if you have Dynasty and Dallas and Power yeah, Fest, we, we have Empire. Thank you. We have Empire, right. and you know you, you're gonna watch it, and it, it really embodies what hip hop is as yeah. far as yeah. the glitz, the glam. Yeah. Dallas was about the oil. That's you're it. about you know. So, <laughs> so it, it's amazing to see you know both of those spectrums being reached with the small screen. And you're involved. In and I'm involved in both. Oh. Holla to boy. <laughs> Yeah, with you. Yes, thank you. Well, I will say real quick though, um, where can folks find you online? Um, oh, yeah, another scene. I need help with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, it was so fun. I went on an audition, right? It was like maybe about three years ago, I went on an audition, and uh, they, the, the people were like, "Oh my God, I love your work. It's so great. We're so happy to have you here." How many followers? How many followers do you have? And, I'm, and I was like, this, "What?" <laughs> I, mean, I came by myself. What do you mean? <laughs> follow me. I hate when that happens. Yeah. Like, no. So I know I know now why I was taught yes. that you know You sweet now. I know I was taught that it was necessary. Yes. It's a necessary evil, it's part of the PA, it's part of, you know, understanding your reach to your audience and this is your audience if you don't grow with your audience. And how did you enjoy it? I, mean, I do I do enjoy it, but I had to learn to enjoy it. Okay. Like the first time I tweeted something like, yo, me and the family going to Alaska, my lady's like, oh, now they know we're not home. <laughs> You just fucked up, and we're about to get mobbed. I'm like, oh, wait, wait a minute. So I had to learn the ins and outs. I'm on 
Twitter, uh, but I'm not on Instagram yet because I just don't have to. You know, I have a great memory. I don't want to sit and take pictures. No, I'm not, I'm not of that life yet. I will say we're a big social media site, and no. like I was talking the other day, like I'm getting older, and I was like, there's something new. Like, I just can I just stick with these five? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Every week, it's like you got it's a something new. Thing. new. And, you know, again, and now I'm like feel like I'm the old person where it's like, oh no, I'm on social media, but only these ones. Only these ones. You young kids, come on, man. The Vine, the gift, the Snapchat. I'm like, I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. We don't want MySpace. What happened to MySpace? This, oh, is, this is just Timberlake by MySpace. I thought you were going to bring that shit back. What happened? So, yes. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, Andre Loyal. I'm on Facebook. But that's it for right now. No. Other than that, come see me in the streets, man. Yeah, and check out huntergatherer.com, huntergathererfilm.com, and yes. they're also uh, huntergatherer on Twitter. The BGM Podcast will return right after this brief message. In addition to being the world's first deck stacking game, created by a trans-feminine Muslim-American, Time Wars, Supreme Command, is also using a unique Kickstarter reward system, Corset Humanity, which is everything you need to play the Time Wars Supreme Command, is ready to go out as a reward the moment the Kickstarter campaign is successful. The funds raised will be used on the next cycle of cards, including Corset Vampire Kind and Deluxe Expansion Z Armor Wars. Time Wars Supreme Command, on Kickstarter now. In our final segment, we interview Simon Tafik. Simon Tafik is a film composer of several award-winning feature-length and short films. Simon's short films have screened in over 200 film festivals, won dozens of international awards, and are being distributed by IFC, PBS, Shorts TV, Realport, and iTunes. In addition to his work as a film composer, Simon Tafik is also a producer and an inventor, and he's recently been working on The New Yorker Presents by Amazon Prime. Hey everybody, this is Karan for Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Mr. Simon Tafik has been known as an early entrepreneur, a BMX inventor. He's an electronic producer and composer. If you don't know his name, you've probably heard his work at some point. He has a new gig working with Amazon Prime's The New Yorker Presents. And we have him today as our guest. Welcome, Simon. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start off talking to you a little bit about your beginnings, your very humble beginnings. You were a very, very young entrepreneur. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that journey? Uh, well, it started out uh, when I was a preteen and obsessed with BMX bikes, BMX racing and BMX freestyle. And I just obsessed about the bikes, mainly because I couldn't afford them. So I would do a lot of uh, daydreaming and sketching and studying so that if and when I ever actually had enough money to buy one, it would be the perfect purchase and it would satisfy all of my BMX needs. So that got really absorbed by me when I actually got further into BMX. I, I was able to get a bike. I worked after school and, and saved my money to do that. And then once I actually got it, 
it wasn't the perfect setup. Mm-hmm. And I was daydreaming and brainstorming about how to make the bike better. And that also coincided with transitioning from BMX racing to BMX freestyle. And BMX freestyle was still in, in its infancy. So a lot of bikes really were not designed for that. Mm-hmm. So this was flatland riding and, and aerial stuff. It's this, the stuff you see on uh, X Games now. And it's really advanced considerably. Back then, it was it was very simple tricks. Uh, we were still trying to figure out how to get a BMX bike to do the things that we needed it to do in mm-hmm. freestyle. So there were a lot of really cool, innovative uh, solutions. And so one of the things that I came up with was designing parts that were modifications of existing parts. And so uh, I designed some prototypes, which was basically designing blueprints and then having them fabricated in Southern California, which is where most of the production was happening for most BMX manufacturing at the time. And I was 13. I was working after school as an office assistant. And the people on the other line, these companies, they had no idea that I was as old as I was. So they thought I was this guy calling from New York and uh, wanting to get some prototypes made. And they accepted my money. And and that was that. Actually, it, it actually wasn't just as simple as that because I had to get a bank account. And because I was so young, they wouldn't allow me to open a bank account mm-hmm, and they wouldn't mm-hmm. allow me to write checks. And so that was an interesting little stumbling block in learning. Uh, I learned a lot about business through that and a lot of the regulations and stuff. And then uh, I started getting these prototypes made and I would take it around to different events where the BMX pros were hanging out or, or making an appearance. And I would ask them for their opinions. And surprisingly, they really dug into what I was designing and presenting to them. And they said, actually, we would learn ourselves. Can you make some for us? So that was a great ringing endorsement for me because these were my heroes. Wow. And they were known for only using the best. They were they were really good at uh, testing gear and, and pushing that stuff to the limit. And so when they saw in my gear some, something that was well-designed and well-built, it meant a lot to me. And so I ended up sponsoring a lot of these riders to use my gear, and it started to really – take off because they would be featured in magazines and then kids would see what they were they were using mm-hmm. and, and would want it to to just use what they used so i started a, a a very modest advertising campaign and it was a, a mail order thing so people were sending checks and loose change in the mail from all over the world and i was i was supplying these orders from my bedroom and then it just blossomed from there and it became this uh a uh, really cool thing, you know. Fast forward to today, you know, I've since disbanded the company. Mm-hmm. When I started going to college, I ended it so I could focus on studies. But now it's it's many years later, and I'll get messages from people who are looking for these parts, and they're willing to pay up to two thousand dollars. And at the time, I was selling them for about ten dollars. Wow! So it's a, a really interesting turn of events. I mean, not just the parts, even like the stickers are going for like 50 bucks. It's really surprising to me because I had no idea that this stuff was going to take in the first place, let alone stick many years later. So it was a real amazing experience in figuring out how to just do something, how to just make something real that you had in your head. And then also the process of dealing with interfacing with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it once you create something, you put it out there and then it's not yours anymore. And people get to tell you what they think of it, 
whether they like it, whether they hate it, and also whether they they want to uh, help you improve it. I got a great deal of support from people, most of it volunteer, and I had no idea that people would be so willing to help a stranger because of an idea I had uh, just doodling around. That's a really impressive entrepreneurial story, especially because you were so incredibly young. Now, you actually became a pro BMX rider as well? No, it turns out that part of my obsession about the bikes ended up being because I wasn't as good at uh, riding as a lot of the other kids. It, it, It turns out that I look towards BMX as an alternative to organized sports. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of us, it was a rebelliousness uh, and a a way of doing something other than the conventional sports. But it turns out that a lot of the better riders were the athletes that would have done well in organized sports, but they just, their head wasn't there or they they wanted a different scene. But physically, it is a very demanding sport. Mm -hmm. And as a, a, a scrawny little teenager, I, whose head was mostly in his books, it it wasn't something that I could master to the extent that my friends were doing it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up focusing on the uh, the products and the designing and the all of the other stuff that surrounded this wonderful sport and and saw a, a vehicle for myself. I saw an, an opportunity that was provided by just enjoying using the bike and and doing these tricks and. No matter how badly I was at it, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to to try all of this stuff out and to to make my way through that whole process and to find another outlet for it that did that was not dependent on my abilities mm-hmm. to, as an athlete was great. It was it just continued the whole journey. So that's that's a lot of fun. It's almost like seeing you know a, a great player or a, a decent player in a sport, and mm-hmm. you see how they can develop into a coach or a manager or something that that's more organizational or more strategic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that you are the best player. You don't have to be a virtuoso to contribute to the sport. Now, you also founded an award-winning tech startup. How did you go from creating in your bedroom for BMX or for bikes, for creating parts to to the technical community? Well, I got bitten by the uh, the, the tech craze uh, mm-hmm. at its And I was in college at the time, and I just had a knack for computers. And then I ended up getting some, some really cool assignments as a consultant, a really young consultant, just helping people solve problems with networks and uh, enterprise applications and stuff that just seemed very natural to me. And in that process, I ended up developing the world's first online help desk. And this is before wow. the internet really took off. Uh, and it was really just being used within the universities. Mm-hmm. And so I was working at NYU in their finance division. And I was, whenever I would walk the halls, people would always grab me and say, oh, uh, since you're here, I've got a bunch of questions to ask you about this application or this computer or whatever. And if I happened to be on something else and they didn't see me, the problems would escalate or accumulate. And mm-hmm. I knew there was a better way. And, and at the time, it was random emails or phone calls. And there just wasn't an organized way to track people's need for help. And it wasn't a, an effective communication system for allowing people to submit their problems. And again, this is all of this stuff has been solved now. But back then, there was no real system for this. So 
I developed a system that was online and integrated email and Perl scripts and basically allowed somebody to fill out a form online and click a button and it submitted to our very targeted email. And it went to a team that I put together of technicians and Mm -hmm. based on a lot of keywords and filtering and stuff, we were able to disseminate questions and, and problems to people who actually knew how to solve them. So that gave me the idea that this could be something that could be scaled up and delivered on a commercial level. So I came up with the green button, which was the idea of having a, a, a virtual green button on your phone or on your computer that if you press it, you immediately get connected to an expert on the other side of the world or on the other side of the street. Wherever they are, there's somebody who has an answer for your question. The hard part is finding out who they are and how to reward them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. I came up with a system that did that, and we got the attention of the VC community in New York, and we we got off to a really great start. And then uh, we realized very early on that the challenge that we were trying to tackle was immense because, again, this was the early days of the Internet, so things like smartphones were not available Mm yet, Wi-Fi, geolocation apps on phones, uh, all the stuff that we take for granted now was not available then. back then. Now, were you back then? We were also largely self-taught and not school taught because the schools didn't quite have the programs to train people for those. So were you self-taught mostly or school taught? Uh, Mostly self-taught. I took a handful of evening classes and Mm -hmm. I really, I tried to uh, enroll in the computer science program at NYU, but I didn't have the prerequisites and uh, an amateur guitar player and songwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so during college, I developed those skills into, into something much more. Now, Simon, looking at your impressive bio and resume, you would think that all of these things that we've so far talked about were not connected. But listening to you talk, they all became building blocks. Everything from your early days as an inventor, I, I'm still astonished and and kind of proud of how young you were when you had the mind to think of solutions that early. We don't often see or hear encouragement for our young people in that way. So I think that's such an important story. Like Mm -hmm. I got to read the the rough draft of The Sixth Sense and seeing how it translated into the finished film was astonishing realization. And he, he did. And I saw the trajectory and I saw all him putting all the pieces together. And so it was, it demystified that whole process. And it's a miracle that any film gets, that gets made. And then it's a, a miracle on top of that for it to be a hit. So as demystifying as it was, it was still an awe-inspiring example. I saw a path for myself in film where I could write the type of music that I liked that was different than music that was ordinarily being composed Films, which was primarily written down on paper and performed by uh, orchestral ensembles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the kind of music that I was inspired by was not only the classical repertoire, but also rock and roll, electronic music, pop music. That's what I grew up on. And then also the music of, of my parents from South Asia. So I hadn't really heard much of those that blending of music in film yet. And... Uh, when digital technology advanced to the point where you could do that in a computer and not have to be bound by the budgets and the scale of a large film, and you could do it for a small film, 
I saw an opportunity for me. And mm-hmm. again, Knight was very helpful in that, in that uh, his studio film, his first studio film, Wide Awake, had a soundtrack album and they were looking for songs. So he said, hey, why don't you write a song? I had the question, well, why indeed? Why don't I just do this? Is so, it that easy? Do they just ask if you're in the right place with the right person? It's, why don't you do it? It It's really just timing and luck. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, and, and we were, you know, we were great friends. So he was very open about the process. And he said, yeah, we're looking for songs. If you want to write one, go for it. So I wrote one and they liked it. I, I did a demo, a really rough demo, and I mm-hmm. gave it to him. And he said, yeah, everybody in the office loves it. Can you get me a, a, a version of this on a DVD or a CD? Mm-hmm. And I had it on a cassette. And that technology wasn't really readily available. I was about uh, to ask, did you have yeah. to put it on a cassette first? Yeah, because I, I had a four-track cassette recorder. So I recorded mm-hmm. this in my, my East Village apartment. And so it's a scratchy demo. And yet the song was there and he loved it. So so then I took it upon myself to re-record the song professionally and have it mixed and mastered digitally. So mm-hmm. uh, so I gave that to him after a few weeks. And uh, he said, okay, great. So let's put it in the movie. And so he did. And then the movie got it went through quite a bit of editing and then the movie, the song came out. And so as lucky as I was to have the opportunity, it's not enough for stuff to, to stick. Right. So, so the song got rejected and I learned one of the, the primary lessons of the entertainment business, which is you're going to have to kill your darlings. Don't be too precious about your art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I learned very quickly to not be too bound to, to those kinds of goals uh, and to be more focused on the process. And I really enjoyed the process of making that song and recording it, writing it. That was profound experience. And uh, I learned a lot and I had a great experience with all the, co- uh, the collaborators on it. And so to trash that because it did end up in, in that movie seemed like a really bad way of treating that whole experience. So, uh, so it, that also was a great lesson of focusing on the process and not the result or at least an output. And then of course the song ended up in another movie quite accidentally. So, Again, being in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. uh, I was being mentored by uh, another composer, and he had written some music for another film. And then they asked him, hey, do you have any other songs? And then he turned to me and said, hey, can we use that song? And that's how it ended up in the movie Temps. That's awesome. Now, how did you end up getting connected with Amazon Prime and The New Yorker Presents? Because that's a huge it's a huge foray into the television space. Now that we have on-demand television, a lot of people are cutting the cord and Amazon Prime is one of the key players when it comes to on-demand programming. Uh, the New Yorker Presents is a very um, in-depth look at human interest stories. And I really enjoy this series a great deal. How did you end up connecting with the New Yorker Presents and Amazon Prime? That was also a very lucky break through a number of collaborators, Mary Harron, Riyadh Faraj. They're people who I, I worked with on a couple of other projects. They uh, And Mary Harron is a, a very accomplished, legendary director. She directed uh, American Psycho, mm-hmm. uh, and she had done an experimental short that I ended up scoring. So through that affiliation, I was introduced to a producer that she worked with, Jack Lecture. And he is the supervising producer for The New Yorker Presents. So 
he had, and this is a little bit of a side tangent. He started a uh, a playwriting group. Mm-hmm. Would meet weekly. I was doing some rough writing for uh, for some sort of narrative medium, and I wasn't sure if it needed to be on a stage or on a screen. So I thought, why not? Jack is great. He's got great instincts. I would love to be exposed to that, and I'd love a, an opportunity to, to write some more. So this will be this will kick me in the butt to to do some more writing. Mm-hmm. And so I would meet with this group that Jack would lead uh, on a weekly basis for six to nine months. I forget how long we met. And by that point, I think he just felt comfortable and he just remembered that, oh yeah, Simon's the guy who writes music for film. So when they were working on this one episode of The New Yorker Presents and the music wasn't working out, he picked up the phone and called me. And at the time I was on set producing the film Imperium. But I knew it was Jack, and I knew all the people that were involved with it, and I couldn't say no. So I took it on, and uh, luckily it it all turned out great. So what's in the future for you? You have a lot that's behind you. You're still young. What's in the future for you? More of the same. I think it's really just being led by my nose, all of those things that smell good to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's I'm producing a number of films now and i've got a number of films that i'm going to be scoring in combination with producing in some cases just exclusively scoring so it's a lot of that i've also been looking at rekindling my bmx products because there's all of that pent-up demand for that Mm -hmm. and then there's green button has an opportunity to to resurface Uh, so there's a number of things that are that are brewing. Right now, I'm in the middle of a a composing fellowship that I was lucky enough to win. And I'm uh, knee deep in scoring music for that. And then I have a number of other projects. So immediately following this fellowship, I have a a feature documentary called Dows of Dubai, which is about the shipbuilding that occurs in Dubai, where they build ships by hand out of wood. And it's a, a dying art, and it's a fascinating look at craftsmanship that no one knows about, and uh, everybody just is blown away by the footage of seeing these these men build these ships by hand in the 21st century. So I'm producing and scoring that, and so we're in the final stages of post-production on that film. And then there's uh, Imperium, which starts, uh, which I beg your pardon, uh, which stars Daniel Radcliffe and Tony Collette. And so that is a that's a film that's being released by Lionsgate and Grindstone uh-huh. and will be uh, released in August of this year. And so we're very excited about that film coming out. And that's the biggest film I've I've ever produced. So that's a, a very exciting uh, little uh, milestone. And uh, it's been a great experience. And I'm working closely with a lot of the collaborators from that project to do some other projects. So. I'm having a lot of fun working on the music side, working on the producing side, and maybe a little bit of inventing and entrepreneuring, uh, mm-hmm. you know, along the way. Your story is sort of the perfect marriage of of technology meets art, the fullness of technology meeting art and having a full life with all of it included. I'm sure I'm not alone. As black girl nerd, I love all of it. I'm deeply entrenched in the arts and deeply entrenched in technology and just listening to your story. It's so inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. Tell us where we can find you. 
Sure. Uh, you can find me on simontafik.com and uh, check out some of the films that I've worked on. They're really special stories that I think relate to a lot of different stories uh, that in people's lives, uh, particularly uh, stories that don't get heard mm-hmm. very often, but we all experience. So uh, I would encourage your listeners to check out She's Lost Control and then, of course, Imperium when it comes out. And that's a very timely film because it's about white supremacist terrorist activity in this country, which has been hidden in plain sight. In plain uh, sight. Yeah. So so check that out. People are talking about all of those issues right now. And and there's a a story based on uh, real events that's going to come out and it's going to be very dramatic. I'm so looking forward to it. Are you on Twitter as well? I'm on Twitter. Uh, Simon Tafik is my handle on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us for Black Girl Nurse. This is Simon Tafik. If you're not familiar with the name, if you're not familiar with the work, get familiar with it. You will not be sorry. You are quite impressive. I have really enjoyed spending this time with you. Again, thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're very kind.